I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Chris. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Not too bad. I've slightly put my back out, so I've uh, oh, no. milking it and stumbling around. So this is fine sitting down, but when I get up from this podcast, if we keep keep it running, you'll see me like an old man as oh, I slightly uh, sporting injury or, or old fartitis again. It's oh, okay. just a different place, but yeah, there's a lot of it going around at the moment. Yeah, there yeah. is. It's quite contagious. It's gone from my uh, Achilles to my knee to my hip, and now my back. So, um, but I'll Jeez. soldier on through this. Um, you'll be pleased to know. Glass of red wine. Yeah, no, that, eases everything. It's still a, it's a bit early in the day for that, but yeah, I'll I'll, mm. I'll target that later. And how are you? Yeah, very well. Can't complain. Well, um, we're being joined today by um, Vittorio Angeloni. Hopefully, I've sound, said that correctly. But uh, uh, he's from Italian stock, as the name would suggest. But he's a, I think, Belfast-based comedian, and he had a sellout show at the Fringe, which he's now taking on tour. And I'm pretty sure he's a, a sports fan, a football fan possibly an Italian fan so um, yeah so we'll have a bit bit of football inside I don't know what else we'll have from him but, but very funny man and you've listened to his podcast is that right? Yeah I've listened to a few of his uh, episodes of his podcast he's I mean very entertaining I follow him on Instagram as well uh, him and I think it's Mike Rice is it Mike Rice? The two of them do Guide to Parenting and it's absolutely brilliant just the two of them constant it's just kind of quick fire you know it's just like listening to two mates with it's like your two funniest mates having a chat in the pub Brilliant. I mean, okay. I guess that's I what podcasts tune... are about. Yeah, isn't I, need it? To tu- I need to tune into that one. Oh, now. it's so yeah. good. It's so yeah. good. And uh, it had me laughing. I was listening to it in the car, and it's just that's yeah, what you want. the perfect perfect soundtrack. Here he's um, he's, in the he's, background, so. he's, ju- he's just joined us, so I shall um, let ah, him in. Excellent. And he's he's on time too. Hello. Here he is. Hey. How's it going? It's very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm back home for Christmas, which is nice. So if a dog appears, uh, it's just my family dog called Cosmo. And he's what kind of what variety have you got? A Cavachon, which is half King Charles Cavalier, half Bichon Free. So a very fluffy little thing. We've Fantastic. got a co- cocker, cocker Spaniel behind me, which will bark at oh, some point when some Christmas a, deliveries come. So I'm actually not sure of the distinction, but is it a working Cocker Spaniel? No, it's. I think it's half working cocker spaniel and half field spaniel. But I literally don't know what that. I don't know what that means. This is like a ridiculous conversation that neither of us know what we're speaking about. Is it part-time spaniel? That's yeah, so it's great. A, it's a sort of insane spaniel that just goes a bit lunatic. Yeah. So whereabouts is home for you then? Belfast. Belfast. Ah, nice, nice. So you, you've been, you've got tour on at the moment, haven't you? Well, it's about to start uh, end oh, of January. The tour starts. Yeah. Are you making making the most of being at home? settle before you you hit the road yeah well it's it's been a, a weird week or two i was actually home last week because uh, my grandmother passed away so oh. i was home for like two oh. days for a funeral um and then i had to go back to london for two gigs where my brain just wasn't in the game whatsoever Ooh. you know kind of fly back to london yeah. and go i guess i have to do these but they're not gonna be good 
um, did them. And then now I'm back and we're trying to transition from funeral mode into Christmas mode, which is quite a big swing to make, I'm finding. Jeez. Yeah, that is a big swing. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. No, it's okay. She was very old and it was all very peaceful in the end, which is good. I was just saying, uh, it was just before you came on there, Victoria, I was just chatting about your uh, Guide to Parenting podcast and how incredibly entertaining that is. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've been listening to it a lot, actually, in different scenarios. I was listening to it on the indoor bike. I was doing a, a training session and quite often I don't listen to music when I'm exercising. Mm. I quite listen to podcasts, quite enjoy listening to podcasts. And I was, I was at a particularly difficult point where I was struggling to breathe and then you guys were chatting about, <laughs> I forgot what you're talking about, but it was, it was, it wasn't helping, put it that way, because yeah. I could barely breathe. Because <laughs> you're making me laugh so much and I was struggling. So, yeah. Well, that's it was, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's such a very, very podcast. People get so angry at us about the name. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there wasn't much in the terms of, uh, as a parent, I was looking, well, this could be funny and helpful, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't talk about it at all. <laughs> So, so there's, not, there's not one mention of parenting in it. Neither of us have kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first episode I was thinking, you know, it's like five minutes left. Thinking, God, they're going to cram a lot in the last five minutes. But um, no, it's uh, <laughs> if that's what you're there for, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're there yeah. for a, for a laugh, then you're going to be very, yeah, very happy. But it's um, it was interesting. The most recent episode, I think you were chatting about some of the abuse you were getting on or some of the comments you're getting in relation to um, a, a joke or a, a, a show you did about comparing Gaza and Northern Ireland, yeah. you know, in a lighthearted way. But I was, yeah, I was yeah. quite interested about how, because I always assume, because you were saying about how some of the comments can be can be hard to deal with. I always assume that comedians, if you had anybody coming back that was giving you anything other than positive response, you would just sort of almost laugh it off. Um, but is it is that the case, or you know, are you do you take things to heart? Is it? I think in the room, it's quite easy if somebody heckles or whatever, and you can generally tell that like the rest of the room are enjoying what's happening, and somebody chips in and goes, "You're shit" or whatever. It's very easy to come back with the kind of strength of the room behind you and the knowledge that, and I guess online often the case is that the loudest commenters are the negative commenters. It's very, it's not very rare, but like it's it's less common that someone will come and be like, I enjoyed this a lot if they don't have anything to kind of add on top of that. Um, that's why everything's clickbait now. Everything wants to start an argument because if you get people riled up, then they're more likely to comment on it and more likely to spend more time on the app. But I think it's something I'm learning. I feel like I'm being exposed to a whole new batch of people. For a long time, I had this like quite small cult following who very much knew who I was and knew what I was going for and knew when I was joking and when I was trying to subvert something and do things like that. But as it gets bigger, it's all positive. It's all the things you want to happen, but you get exposed to a world of people who think that something you're saying is that you're saying is tongue in cheek. They might think you're saying it seriously or the other way around. And you can see how your jokes where you go, oh, I was trying to make this point, but they're taking something completely different from it. And it's just very, it's almost like scary in a strange way where you go like, this is so unbelievably out of my control. And it takes a lot of like mindfulness to be like, you're never going to be able to control that. People will willfully 
misinterpret what you're trying to put out there. They will project their own ideals onto what you're saying, either to agree with it or disagree with it. Um, I often like if people really hate what I'm saying, that's one thing. I almost find it worse when people have decided that they agree with me for something that I haven't said <laughs> and elect me as some kind of spokesperson standing for up for their cause. cause. And yeah. I'm like, this is not my cause. <laughs> You're not going to enjoy so many other things that I say. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny world, isn't it? And on social media and on, you know, on these apps, it's just, um, but I guess, it, as you say, the clickbait element to it, it, it must, it must just generating that interest and that debate. It must help to at least, gain wider exposure and people who, you know, you hope that 95 or 99% of your audience will be sensible and can see what is a joke and what is taken or what's intended to be taken tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's def- the, the worry, I guess, is that you can create these characters. You can, you can present these ideas that you think, oh, it's, it would be so ridiculous for somebody to think this. That's why it's funny. And you present it to an audience and then those actual ridiculous people go, yeah. <laughs> and you go, no, I didn't. And a, a common example of that is um, someone like Al Murray, you know, the pub landlord. He kind of created this character to kind of subvert the idea of this kind of like uh, racist or like, you know, bigoted pub landlord type guy who's a bit of a loudmouth. And then a lot of kind of loudmouth pub landlords started coming to the shows being like, yeah, he's our guy type thing. So it's this. <laughs> difficult balance of like you want to do complex art i guess it's difficult to like i think stand-up comedians including me get very uncomfortable with the idea of referring to ourselves as artists but i mean i love it when other people do it i think so, some people are incredibly artful with their stand-up comedy and get across very complex and nuanced ideas and feelings i'm forever in conversation saying to people oh so and so has a joke about that and then just reciting the joke because it's the most succinct and enjoyable way to get that point across or to explain how I feel about that certain thing. I think it can be very powerful, but I think it's just taking a deep breath and going, no, these people don't have a right to my pocket. That's a phrase my friend Robbie came up with recently. Just because they can send you a message and it does come up on your phone, it doesn't mean you have to read it and it definitely doesn't mean you have to respond to it. I think that's a lesson I've learned recently. We don't get many comments, do we, Matt? I think that's probably because we don't have many <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll come in time. Well, I was going to, like, because the, the sports thing, sports, like, sports people get so much abuse online i'm sure yeah. it's more of a thing particularly i think for for team sports i think if mm-hmm. the feeling of if you've let down a team like uh, i'm sure everybody watched that david beckham documentary recently when he got that red card and the whole world just kind of like piled on to him and even like yesterday like mary Earps, who was like brilliant and so cool and funny and such a great personality for the year wins sports personality of the year and everyone's going, well, she didn't even win any blah, 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 blah. And you go, right, but that's not what the awards were. Chris, did you like, I guess there are team bits of cycling, but I guess it feels like in an individual support, there's maybe less abuse, but maybe I'm just ignorant. Of I, that. I think it's definitely right with team sports, but I think it's also the, the profile of mm-hmm. the sport. So track cycling was such a small sport, still is a you know, relatively small sport, a minority sport. So the people who pay an interest to it are just fans. Mm. So it's only after, like I had, I never had a single 
negative comment, literally, you know, in the early days of social media, because nobody cared, because the yeah. only people who were going to comment would be your mum or your <laughs> pals or, you know, so you're, they're only going to say, well done, or, you know, keep it up yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to the Olympics and you reach the general audience of mass, mass media become interested in what you're doing for that two weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is the interesting point when you have this, this influx of people who will just, you know, as you're saying, politics or causes that you're, you're suddenly dragged into. It was during um, our post Beijing 2008, there was the, the, um, the, the beginning of the Scottish um, independence movement or not the beginning of it, but that was heading in towards the referendum, you know, six years to go before that big push with that. And it became this, you know, all of a sudden you're a, you're a Scottish athlete who's done well, Olympics, yeah. you're in the media and they want to know everything about your opinions, about what side of the fence you're on. And a bit like yourself talking about, you know, political issues, you didn't, you know, you've not aligned yourself with either side. You've basically been very neutral and, and sort of sensible, all saying the things that we all most, you know, sensible people would think. But even then, people, both sides would go, ah, oh, he's on our side, we're going to use him this way. Yeah. No, no, he's on our side. And you're like, what? I didn't say that. And it was, it was really that period of time was an eye opener for me in terms of just how scary it is. That that lack of control, that feeling of suddenly everybody has an opinion. Nobody really knows you, but they have an opinion about you or about what you said. Um, yeah, and I find, I mean, and yeah, I, I, some people love that. They love the the controversy because it generates more interest and it generates more more clicks, and therefore you know you can monetize that or whatever. But for me. I always try to, I've always tried to sort of step away from that because it just, I find that stressful. I'd much rather just have a small audience and have a bit of fun. It's interesting you say it's the team sport bit, but one of the sports I cover as sports journalists is, t- is tennis and the abuse in tennis is absolutely out of control. And, and a big part of yeah. it is to do with betting around it. So if people have bet oh. on something and you're, you know, you're the favourite to win or you're, you know, and then suddenly you're winning a set and then you lose the next two and go, the, some of the thing comments I've seen under, underneath, and I think it's with female players even more than male players, are, 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 are horrific. I don't know, that's like a new, a newer thing now than in terms of abuse on social media than before. Well, that's a really good example of probably what it is a lot of the time is these people who are betting money that they can't afford to bet on uh, sports that they maybe don't know that much about they're probably adding flipping you know the odd tennis match under their accumulator alongside you know the united match or whoever mm-hmm. is playing that the sports that they're into or any number of things and betting's never a sure thing and and that obviously stems from maybe issues in their own life that are going on and that's so often the case that and i have friends who are comedians if someone like comments something really really nasty and aggressive on one of their posts they'll send them a message and be like Hey man, just checking in to see if you're okay, because uh, that was quite a nasty thing that you said. And nine times out of ten, they're like, "Oh yeah, man, I'm just having a really hard time with this. I'm really sorry. Wow. I didn't think you'd see it." And it's just them venting something yeah. that they're having issues with in their own life. And I think that betting example is probably spot on. Was they're probably having financial troubles. It's tough at the minute, and some part of their brain when they're placing that bet, they go, "Well, my." month or my lights being on is in the hands of this tennis player and they take it out on them and that's mm. just not their responsibility you know it's not Nadal's responsibility for you to pay your rent that's you're, you're misplacing <laughs> this anger in the, in the wrong direction I would say but yeah I, I, I've, I've clocked that with the tennis I think also sports that have like a prestige to them or like a, 
a kind of middle class culture to them. I know that people in the tennis world really don't like Nick Kyrgios, and I think he's great. He's such kind of like a like a just boisterous character, and he really ruffles feathers. I think that's really exciting, but. I think in the world of kind of lawn tennis, I think some people don't like the fact that he's there, you know? I think the social media is, I guess, it, did, well, it didn't exist 20 years ago, whatever, but, you know, it maybe stems from the fact that when you're in the terraces at a football match and you're venting, you're shouting, you shout things at the players, at the referee, at the situation when it's not going your way. That, that's essentially what social media is because people could be sitting at home watching the match on TV and instead of just shouting at the telly, they're going to go, I'm going to message this person directly. And it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's, but the context, you can't tell the context when you're, when you receive that message, it's just in black and white typed out. You, you can't see if it's tongue in cheek, you can't see if it's an anger, you can't see if it's a fleeting moment mm. or if that person sat down and goes, this is exactly what I feel. And I consistently feel this way throughout the day. I'm going to send a message and I want you to read it. It's, it's just, it's, I think it's, it's very hard to, to take on board and to also to not take on board negative um, negative messages because they, they do hit hard if you do read them. I guess the only way to deal with them is to not read them. Yeah, I read every single one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's healthy. Yes. If you want to send me a nasty message, I will read it. We'll, we'll do I, it after you... this. We'll both do it after the podcast. <laughs> but not only that, man. Not only that. When, when he gets a message, it's not just a nasty message. Even it, it could be in a different language and you'll go and translate it, don't you? you, you there yeah, was a, I got There was a message, a big long message in a DM that you, you Google translated. I'm so desperate to know what people think about me. I'm going to translate and switch it from Hebrew to English just to find out what's going on. Oh, brilliant. Definitely not healthy, but sure. Um, on the sport thing, because you touched on that, what are you... A- I, I, I know you're. A, I think you're a football fan. Is that other? Is that a, a love I'm for you? A, or? I'm a football fan. I grew up playing loads and loads yeah. of sports when I was a kid. I played basketball. I played Gaelic football, and I played rugby. Rugby was probably my biggest uh, sport that I was into. But I, I just refused. I was a child that refused to give anything up. You know when you kind of hit those dilemmas where you go, oh well, rugby training and basketball training are on the same night, so you're going to have to pick one. And I went, well, no. So I would leave rugby training 15 minutes early, caked in mud, and go straight to basketball training, get changed wow. in the car, and just be this smelly basketball <laughs> player for the next two hours. It was absolutely ridiculous, but I just, I loved team sports. I, re- I struggle with individual sports. I think I get very, very frustrated with myself, which is weird, kind of going into stand-up comedy. It's kind of the individual sport of performing, I guess. But um, yeah, rugby, if I would, if there was one that I was really into and thought, yeah, I think that's that that would be my sport that I was What was What was your position? What were you generally playing? Where were you generally playing? My favorite position was outside center in rugby, but I've yeah, played, right. I like anywhere across the back line from nine to 15, except 12. I don't know why... Inside center, I find horrifically boring to play, but outside center, I think, is the most exciting <laughs> position on the pitch. Isn't but it? I, because it's the, the first thing as a, as a fly half, the first sort of move you have is a missed pass. You miss out the inside yeah. center, you pass straight to the outside center. So yeah. the, the number 12 stand there going, oh, thanks very much. Where's the ball? You know? Yeah, it feels like I, you don't get to do any of the fun bits. Mm. You kind of, you're just at the wrong moment. Fly half, kind of, you get that pressure of controlling the game and running the show and telling people what to do and this that and the other and you can be quite creative at fly half and i really enjoy that 
But at 12, it's like there's no creativity in that sense, but there's also no real space for flair. You kind of put other people into positions to have flair. And I think I'm a bit too arrogant to not get the credit for it. At the end. <laughs> <laughs> so how far did you take it? Were you, were you playing, did you, did you play after, are you still playing now? Did you play after so school? I, I moved to London when I was 18. And just in the summer before I moved to London to go to university in London, I was playing in a tournament called the Nutty Crust Cup, uh, which is a, a bread in Northern Ireland. <laughs> And uh, the man of the match got a loaf of bread, which is <laughs> game. Uh, what well, it was such an interesting tournament for us because in the f- the f- f- we played the first round and we got absolutely walloped and uh, put out of the tournament. But then, and we were kind of really dejected. We we're like, "Oh, that was pretty crap. This is supposed to be the last tournament of the season. It was really exciting." And then it turned out like one of their substitutes wasn't eligible to play in the game. So we got a bye to the next Ooh. round and ended up making the final of the tournament, having been absolutely walloped in the first round wow. before. And I, it was the best tournament I've ever played in my whole life. I scored two tries every game of the whole tournament. It was just absolutely, it just clicked. It was the first tournament where I'd been starting at outside center. I think that's why it's still my favorite position. I was like, this makes sense. I know where I'm supposed to go here. <laughs> but in the final, I got, uh, I was ca- caught the ball, passed it on just before I got tackled. And the guy kind of hit me a little bit. And normally, like, if the ball's gone, you just give him a little tap to be like, oh, the ball's away. And I gave him a little tap on the back. And his response to that was to pick me up, turn me upside down, and, like, drive my shoulder into the ground. So wow. I broke my collarbone in my last game for my wow. club in Belfast, yeah. And that was, like, three months before I moved to London. So that first few months of uni, when I think it's really important, I went to a very small, like artsy music college. So they didn't really have like sports teams very much. So it would have taken quite like I Googled a little bit, the rugby clubs that I could maybe join in London, but just that injury as well, coming back from it, I didn't feel very confident. And there was a delay in the kind of time off. I had to do all like the physio and rehab and stuff. So it just completely fell off. Like sport really, really fell off when I moved to uni. I think it happens to lots and lots of people. And then you go through and you're like, oh, it's busy. And you're always moving house in London every year. And you're a student and this, that, and the other. Then you graduate and you've got that extra stress. Like, oh God, I've got to make a living. I've got to do this and that. And then I started doing stand-up comedy. And you have to gig every single night. You're like, I can't take a night off and just go do rugby training. But now that I'm just slightly more established, I feel slightly more settled doing full-time stand-up comedy, don't have a part-time job, don't have any of that stuff. I'm really trying to carve out time. And I've recently gotten back to playing rugby literally in the past month, which is very exciting. I'm really, really buzzing. How's that going? Well, I have my first game on Saturday. I'm playing for a club in London, which I, which I won't name. I don't want any adoring fans coming. Tens of thousands of people turning up. I tried so hard. I was like this because I'm like really obsessed with comedy, and my girlfriend's always having a go at me for being overly obsessed. Like all I ever talk about is comedy, and she was like, e- "You've had hobbies. You need to go get back into your hobbies and have a life outside of comedy." So I was like, "Right, when I go to this rugby training, I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm a comedian. I'm just going to keep that under wraps." And just like, you know, I can just be like a person and like, you know, just live a life away from whatever it is I, I, I do in the evenings or whatever. Oh, it's just work. Just refer to it as work. And if anybody asks, just say you're a teacher or something, right? <laughs> Go up to the first training session. 
And the captain goes, are you Vittorio? And I was like, yeah. Uh, but I thought, oh, I just sent a message. Maybe he just thinks I'm coming along. And he went, I have tickets to come see you in March. And I was like, well, wow. that's that dream over. <laughs> <laughs> so now I am the comedian. Of You're the, the funny guy. guy. Oh, God, I You're hate You're going to have to so crack jokes all the time with pressure. <laughs> yeah. so bad. It's something but, funny. Tell us a joke. I know. But I've been mm. really enjoying it. Really, really like nice bunch of lads. And it, it's happened to me kind of twice in my life. When I played rugby in Belfast, I played for quite a rare thing in that it was quite a working class rugby team. Uh, and rugby has this reputation for being quite middle class and quite posh and like and has like a real lad culture to it. But that wasn't my experience of rugby whatsoever. And I really, really loved that. It was just very, very welcoming. Nice bunch of guys who would go for a beer after, but it wasn't any of these like forfeits or the court or the like the deck of the day or whatever it was just the kind of very chill i'm not i'm not into it. i'm not a big like yeah. lads lad or whatever i'm just into like it, sipping a pint and having a chat <laughs> so i really enjoyed that and then i've moved over to uh, london and there is still that there, i think english rugby culture is slightly more laddy but um but it is a, it's a very working class uh rugby team and it's probably one of the most uh, ethnically diverse rugby teams uh in london from looking at the the one game I've played so far it was and like just from my experience of rugby in London so far, like, and that's such an interesting dynamic as well. We had a bizarre one recently because there's obviously like there's there's different kind of iterations of racism in different sports. And often you kind of get those explicit ones of abuse from the stands or this, that and the other. But we had a bizarre one the other day where we have a few black players in the team and the referee would call a penalty on one of them and then just point at the wrong one <laughs> and we were all like he no. wasn't anywhere near the ball and also that guy's got a shaved head and that guy has really long dreadlocks <laughs> there's just there's no looks nothing like him <laughs> and one of yeah. our players like as a little like it was a little jab at the referee I guess he goes you know they don't all look the same and the ref gave a penalty to the other team well, for no. him suggesting that the referee was racist. No. It was I'm, like, I was just blown away by it the whole time. It was crazy. Wow. I thought they were supposed to get the number of the player. The whole point is as a referee, you know, you look at the, you get the number of the player yeah. and you write it down or you note it mentally and that's well, the person that's yeah, done it. The ref was an absolute shambles. He <laughs> consistently raised the wrong hand for who had advantage or who had a penalty. So he would raise the wrong hand, we would pick up the ball, and then he'd be like, okay, 10 meters for not retreating, like 10 meters. When the, and we were like, but you were, you said it was our pet. Wrong way. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but it's that I, I always wonder about referees. I think they're such an interesting person. And like, you've got to be some level of dork to become a referee of like amateur rugby in London. Like, it's like, yeah, I want to be involved in rugby, but in none of the fun ways. <laughs> it's, the power, it's the power of being in control yeah. of all yeah. these big guys. And, you know, I, I don't know. Obviously, not everyone has the same reason for becoming a referee. But there was a guy who was a referee um, when we were kids. And it was at Edinburgh schools playing. And it was a, an absolutely miserable day. Like one of these days where it's sleet and it's coming in sideways. And we were only about 10, you know, it was like... Mm. It's kids rugby. The whole point at that age is you're trying to encourage, you're trying to make it fun. 
and it was a miserable day. All the dads had just gone back into the cars to sit and watch it from the car. <laughs> yeah, it's that yeah, bad. The weather was, was that bad. That. <laughs> yeah. So these poor kids who were, you know, we we're all standing out there freezing, and we were getting absolutely thumped by this team. And uh, it was like he played every single minute of injury time. It was fifty-four nil oh at the end. It's God. like, look, we don't. You, you've, you know, you've made your point. Your team yeah. is better than ours. You yeah. don't need. But he just. It was this mentality of. This, these are the rules and I'm going to enforce them and this is how it's going to be. It's like, yeah. I don't know, just, yeah, on the flip side, loads of other great referees, so I'm not I'm not bashing the referees, but this oh, no, and they're stuck so in my necessary. mind. They're so necessary yeah. as Petty. well, those referees. I always hate that when, like, at youth level sport, when a team just decides to keep piling on the points or whatever, it's like they've got whatever bonus points they could possibly accrue at that point. There's no kind of benefit to it. I played a basketball match once when I was maybe like 16 and I think it's in memory one of the angriest I've ever been because we were getting absolutely trounced by this team and they just kept they were like doing a full court press they were like right up against us like as, it was as if they, it was there was one point in it with a minute to go but for the whole last quarter they were just right up in our faces and I said I was like what are you doing? Like what what are you getting from this? And one of them said, oh, our club, there's like a record of the biggest victory and we're vaguely close to it. So we're trying to get this record for the biggest victory. So anytime any of them went anywhere near the basket, I just started clotheslining them. I was like, I am getting in the way of this petty little score that you're trying to set Because this is so disrespectful and unsportsmanlike. Oh, I don't gee. care that 30 years ago so this team beat someone set by 70 points and you want to do the same. I'm going to make your life a misery until you don't get the record. It was ridiculous. And did they get it? I think they did. I, was <laughs> I think I got taken off the. I think Damn I got it. taken off the court after two crows. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I meant to ask with the rugby, when you came back playing, how did that feel? Like, how was the body the so next day? Sore. Yeah, okay. Oh, my goodness. The first, even the first training when I just held a pad that somebody went into, so many muscles in my back just went, <laughs> oh, we're doing this again? <laughs> you haven't done this in nine years. Are you sure? And then 
when I went, like we didn't, we hadn't even done any tackling in the training and stuff. And then went into the game and I was like, here we go. Make the first tackle. And I have like a recurring, I'm quite like hypermobile. I dislocate things quite a lot. And the first, like I strapped up my thumb, like I always did when I was a teenager, because my thumb was one of the ones that kind of popped out a lot. First tackle, thumb just click, click, out and back oh, in again. No. And I was like, well, gonna have to get used to that again. Oof. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so sore. Uh, yeah, really well, my only, only rugby injury as a kid was a scapoid fracture, basically doing a handing off. Mm. Um, and the thumb just went pop all the way back. And it was, yeah. I was about 15. It was right before the mock exams at school on my right hand. So I couldn't hold a pen. Had a full oh, cast wow. on, so I had to get a scribe for the exams. But it was the one weekend, like literally one weekend. My parents went away for a, a nice weekend together. Mm. I stayed at my uncle and auntie's house, and they came back on the Sunday night and <laughs> had this plastic <laughs> cast on. Like, <laughs> I was like, "What have you done?" But, I was a I was a constant A and E visitor in my rugby playing career. I think there was a twelve month period in my life where I think I had twenty X rays. Twenty. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. One of the worst ones I had, I think the longest still that I've ever spent in A&E was 14 hours. Sheesh. Where we arrived. And basically what had happened is a ball had hit the tip of my finger as I was trying to catch it. I kind of dropped it. Then I picked it up and threw it to somebody and went, oh, that ball's got a dent in it. And then I picked up another ball and I was like, oh, that one does as well. And then I looked at my finger and it was just, the top had just folded over and I was like oh no I've got a dent in me that's what happened there <laughs> and I, so I went to A&E because I couldn't straighten my finger back up and I went in and it sat there kind of registered with the thing and if you're not like bleeding out of your eyeballs they just go right go sit down over there and I kind of oh, sat off. down and they were like okay someone will see you when they see you eight hours later somebody comes out and sees me and they go, right, let's come through and get you x-rayed. And I was like, Grant, take it in, push, bash, bosh, get the x-ray, go back out and sit there. And like, right, we'll come back when, we, when we've looked at that. And then two hours later, uh, so this is 10 hours into being an A&E, they, um, they come back out and go, oh, yeah, Victoria, come in, we've got your x-ray thing. And they're like, oh, it's just bruised. And I was like, it's not. I don't want to be rude, but it's not because I can't straighten my finger and I showed them it and then the nurse just pushed my finger back up and my finger just came straight back down again <laughs> and I was like see and by this point we're 11 maybe 12 hours into oh, A&A I have read every leaflet in the building <laughs> and I handed her a leaflet and went I think it's this <laughs> and it was a leaflet for a thing called mallet finger which is where you tear one of the tendons down the backs and that stops your finger from like staying straight. So um, you tear that and then it just kind of flops down exactly as, as mine had done. And she took it and she went, you know, I think you're right. Wow. And then an hour after that, they come out and treat me for mallet finger, give me a splint that you need to recover from it. So after 10 hours in A&E, I diagnosed myself. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's a great system though because all the leaflets laid out sit down there have a read through which one do you think you've got yeah. bring it to us and we'll treat you for that 
Yeah, it's like a game of guess who. It's like, is it your finger? Yes, okay, flip down all the other ones. <laughs> Chris, Chris, I think I may have said this on the podcast before, but my son used to play rugby quite a lot. He's 15 now and he's, he's stopped, but he was he was really good. But he, he cut his knee open and bless him, he sort of got a bandage on it and kept on playing, thinking that's what he needed to do. But there was just too much blood coming out. So so I take him off to A&E and he has to have it stitched up. And he was like, oh, does this happen injuries in rugby lot? And I'm like, no, no, you know, you're, you're fine, Freddie. Don't worry about it. And we get to A&E and the only other people waiting in A&E <laughs> are, 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 in rug, are in rugby kit, two of which are from his club. No. Uh, one's got like an elbow pointing the wrong way. The yeah. shoulder's gone and another one, someone's holding their leg. And that was it. And he, he never played rugby again after that. Oh, that's oh, funny. That, that put him off it. But. Yeah. That's so. Talking of the scribe thing, Chris, when you mentioned that, when I did my collarbone in the May of my last year of school, oh, we've got a dog arriving. Oh, he's not sure about whether he's going to jump up during the. Oh, there he is. Very exciting. Look, there's my dog. Isn't he nice? Hey, oh. there we go. But uh, yeah, uh, I broke my collarbone. That was May of my last year at school, so it was about to be all like my A levels, the last exams, and it was my left arm, so I was fine but I'm always a bit of a blagger. So I got extra time in all my A-levels because my left arm was in a sling. <laughs> wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's, so it's an important good. part of your uh, exam process. Yeah, I was like, how am I going to lean? I need to yeah, lean. What's that like? Pick your nose or, you know, <laughs> turn the page. <laughs> yeah. My scribe, I remember, I mean, for, it was for all the different exams. He had different, a different sixth-year um, students who would come and sit with you and be your scribe and would write mm. it out and, most of them were, were just, you know, did the job normally. But there was one guy, I think it was my chemistry exam, and every time I got a question wrong, he would go, are you, are you sure about that? Oh, that's great. Wow. And I'd be like, um, yeah, yeah, I think so. He said, yeah, you, are you sure you're sure? <laughs> so Actually, I, I, no, I don't think I'm sure I'm sure. I'm gonna, let me just check it again. And every, every single question I got wrong. I mean, I didn't, didn't necessarily get it right after he'd drawn my attention to it, but but it still definitely helped me. He was, a, he was yeah. an absolute diamond geezer. So, yeah, yeah. The big shout out to anyway. that guy that helped me out in my <laughs> S4. That's so class. Mm. I love that. What a good guy. And tell me about your football thing. I think I saw one of your stand-up routines where you're talking about going to the Euros, to the final, as an Italy yes. fan, obviously. Yeah, that was pretty stressful going to the... I was just so excited. It's a very rare thing for me to get to be Italian. Like, I, I'm half Italian, but I'm extremely culturally Irish. Um, just grew up in Belfast my whole life, you know. And even my dad grew up in Belfast, even though both of his parents are Italian. So I was just very, very excited. And like we used to be... I think you identify with whatever makes you different. So I remember growing up, we were always like the Italian kids and we were always dead excited about wearing our Italy tops and doing this, that and the other. So when so many of the games for the Euros were at Wembley and Italy were doing decent, I was like, this is unbelievable. And I, I did that rationale that you have in your head where you kind of rationalize spending money on a thing you want to spend money on anyway. I was like, well, the thing is, if Italy were in the final of a major tournament normally, I would have to get flights and hotels and all this extra stuff. So in a way, I'm saving money. <laughs> Man maths. That's what that is. It's, so, it's <laughs> yeah. classic. Yeah. So I, I go, I went to the last 16, Italy versus Austria. I went to the semi-final, Italy versus Spain. Both of them were great. Uh, and then I went to the 
final, Italy versus England. Great, but much more tense, I would say, amongst all the chaos. Like Italy versus Spain, not exactly a huge rivalry. Everybody there just really likes cured meat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the ham derby. <laughs> <laughs> and then the snacks fight. at halftime. Yeah, <laughs> the best snacks at yeah. halftime. Anyway, we go to the um, the final. It's just me by myself. I've gone to all these games by myself just because tickets are quite pricey. And then you kind of, I'm just like, I'll just go. Problem is, I'm such a visibly, like, emotionally, like, vocal Italian fan, but I don't speak a word of Italian. So I'm there after the Italy-Spain game, went on penalties, crying my eyes out. Can't believe that I was there. One of the best moments of my whole life. And I'm there by myself, so other Italy fans come up to me to try and like talk to me. And they're like, Scabbity, baby. <laughs> <laughs> How does that go again exactly? I don't know. <laughs> and I just don't I just don't know. I'm just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but then on the way to the game, the England game, I probably somewhat stupidly just wore an Italy top on the tube on the way to uh, Wembley. Yeah. Because um, I just thought it was going to be a fun day out, you know, like football, mm. fun, like the Italy-Spain game. But the England fans were slightly more aggressive than the Spain fans yeah. were. So I sat in the tube and people were slapping me on the head and punching me in the arm and like screaming in my face. Um, so my tactic was the almost the opposite of the Italy-Spain game. On the way to the game at Wembley for the final, I just pretended I didn't speak any English. <laughs> So I was just sat on the tube and people were screaming in my face. And I swear to God, I was just naming pastas. <laughs> they were like, ah! And I was like, rigatoni. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. But I went, I went along and uh, loved it. So exciting. Well, once I was in kind of the, the Italy fan stand, barring the odd uh, plastic pint cup full of, I don't want to guess, mm. um, from the balcony above, that which was pretty rare to be honest just the best the best time ever just an unbelievable moment of i can't believe i was here yeah like it's unbelievable that I, that i was here and people like made fun of me when italy didn't qualify for the world cup and i was like that team and the italy football team forever owe me nothing as a fan i've seen them win a major tournament in person i could not, most people don't get that mm. ever. So I've the, the Italy football team could lose every single game I ever see them play <laughs> for the rest of my life, and I would still be unbelievably grateful that I got to see that and just be amongst the complete chaos. And then abject fear on the way home of like, oh my god, your Italy shirt off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like I'd rather be topless. So yeah. when, if, if Ireland, like during the Rugby World Cup, were you supporting Ireland, Ireland and Italy the, or just Ireland or? The rugby is a slightly easier choice normally. Because um, you kind of, it like in the Six Nations, it's always a fun day in our house. And generally what it comes down to is the kids support Ireland and dad supports Italy. And that's just like that little bit of fun that we have. And it's pure just, I'm fortunate to have two options. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So whoever is probably going to win or whoever has more chance of doing better in the tournament, I'll identify as whatever that is. Generally, if there's rugby on, I'm much more Irish. Generally, if there's football on, I'm quite an Italian. 
Yeah. So you're, a you're a glory seeker, essentially, because you go, obviously, Ireland are better at rugby, <laughs> Italy are better at football. I You're a fluid, fluid fan. You just go wherever the success yeah, is. Yeah, 100%. I'll go with the wind, man. <laughs> Understand that. Fair enough. But I, I remember when I was a kid, before I kind of understood uh, anything about football or the history of Ireland more broadly, My when I was like, I want to be a football player when I was like six or seven years old, I was like, I'm going to be a football player. And I was explaining to my dad once, I was like, here's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to become a professional football player. That'll be super easy. And then when I start getting playing internationally, I'll start playing for Northern Ireland because they're not great. And then when I get better, I'll move and play for the Republic of Ireland. And then when I get better again, I'll move again and play for Italy. And my dad was like, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I like the plan, though. That's quite a logical progression towards can, the, the pinnacle. For sure, but I don't think... Um, Looking at how Jack Grealish has been accepted by Irish fans after his move, I don't know if it's the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Exactly. So in, in terms of, you mentioned basketball. Is that another sport you had a real passion for and you, you follow? Again, for I was sure, listening I... in your podcast, you were chatting about, um, <laughs> well, you were chatting about various NBA stars and their interactions with their teammates, wives and mothers and girlfriends and stuff. It's it's like a it's like a league full of Wayne Bridges. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <on the> <laughs> I had no idea this sort of stuff went on, but yeah, it was oh, an eye opener. Incredible, yeah. yeah. The 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 most egregious one is there's a basketball player for Delonte West, basketball player called Delonte West. He used to be a teammate of LeBron James, and he slept with LeBron James's mom. <laughs> yeah, and I just think, what are the how on any what how has any member of those three people let that happen in any way whatsoever? <laughs> Although that is my argument as to why I think Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James. Because I don't know if you saw the last dance. Michael Jordan would invent grudges to have <clears throat> against other players to like motivate him to score more points. If someone else in the league, because when this happened, Delonte West was playing for a different team. If someone else in the league had slept with Michael Jordan's mother. I can't explain to you how many points he would have scored the next time they played against him. He would have scored 200 points. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's the ultimate motivation. And you what get your, te you your teammates to be on your side as well. They'd be like, right, we're going to get him. And that's it. I think I would score decently in an NBA game against someone who slept with my mother. <laughs> Yeah, what is it thanks. about basketball that you love then? I've not, I've, I, I like seeing sort of highlights of it, but I've never got massively into so it. So this, I, I think watching basketball, I find quite difficult. It's a very, right. and it, this plays into the reason that I love rugby so much. Rugby is definitely my favorite sport to watch. Basketball, I love watching live because I think it's one of those sports where on TV, they're all that big, they're all jumping that high and the net just looks kind of low. But when you're sat there and you can see how high everything is, it's it's like watching a cartoon. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's just like, how are any of them moving like this at that size? It's completely insane. But I think the problem with basketball is they score too often. So every 30 seconds or even less, another team will score pretty much. So at that point, scoring feels quite inconsequential until you get to the last five minutes really the other end of that spectrum for me is football where 
it's really exciting when someone scores in football, but f- it's it's too common for it to be nil nil. In my opinion, it's like it's too often that that just doesn't happen at any point. Obviously, a goal in football changes your life, and it's unbelievable. And that Italy England match was one each, and then it went to penalties. So it's not like you know that was um, a hugely high scoring game, but it was still very exciting. But that's where I think rugby splits the difference between the, those two so excellently because it's like scores happen regularly enough that it's exciting when they happen but not too regularly that you're just like oh yeah another one you know what i mean i think that's my problem absolutely basketball that's a really you've you've absolutely nailed it there i've never really looked at it from that perspective but you're right you're absolutely right that it almost undervalues basketball it's almost just they're so the, the scores are so frequent every few seconds it's not like you're standing up in your chair going absolutely crazy because they just yeah. they might get a three pointer or an amazing shot that they, the crowd would get on their feet, but that yeah. would be an exception. Normally, it's just score, boom, score, boom. Yeah, and you get to the last really ten minutes, and all of a sudden, then it gets interesting if it's close. But equally, you know, ninety minutes and nobody scores in football. It's, it's just it's, where do you stand tough. on sports who are trying to trying to engage more with the fans and? you know manipulating the sport so like cricket t20 um you know there's in formula one they're doing sprint races they're trying to they have drs to make overtakes more mm. right you know more more um, frequent i understand like what where do you where, where do you stand on sports that are kind of tailoring the rules and the format for audiences who have less and less attention well this is the interesting thing about professional sport i guess isn't it wherein you kind of um it's when sport becomes entertainment and that line gets drawn where you go well all the money that everybody's getting paid as soon as it becomes professional all the money comes from it being entertaining and people wanting to watch it and enjoy it and i think i think every fan has their own little line don't you where you just go oh well that doesn't that no longer feels like the thing I wanted to watch where you just, you don't know it. You wouldn't be able to write it down beforehand. I wouldn't be able to tell you right now what rule in rugby would have to change for me to be annoyed about it or no longer feel like it was authentically rugby. I couldn't tell you that right now. It's well, where do you stand? When, do you remember when it used to, you're probably too young, but I remember when it was four points for a try, two for a conversion, mm. three for penalty. And then they changed the obviously well, five used for to a be try. No, it used to be no points for a try. Did you know that? That's no. why it's called a try. So when you touched it down, you got zero points. And then that's why it's called a conversion. Ah. It was an opportunity to convert that into points. I never knew that. Yeah, you used to that. get no points for to unless I'm so I think I'm right about no, this. It's not, it sounds it's logical that. though, based on the name. Yeah. So to get I the think, points, you've got to convert it. Yeah, that's why you convert it into points. Wow. And that's why it's a, you get a try at points. Um, and obviously, it's bad. I think it anything you can do to promote exciting kind of brands of rugby, I think is really, really good. And I think the work that's done in speeding up the scrum, I know like it's just that time where the game isn't being played. It's It's almost like those moments and I don't know if you ever watch like mixed martial arts where they're rolling around on the floor and if you know everything about jiu-jitsu then you're like it's so exciting you're like oh he's got his wrist at this certain angle and then he can be able to do this thing and that thing but I don't know anything about that so they're just kind of on the floor for a bit and I go all right 
I kind of prefer it when they're standing up. Um, <laughs> but then rugby, it's the same for me. Like in the scrum, I've never been in a scrum. Massive respect to anyone who puts themselves through that. It seems absolutely ludicrous to me that anyone, like if I showed up every time I went to a rugby training or match, I had to be in a scrum. I don't think I would have played rugby plus past the first training session that seems like an <laughs> awful place to be but they've done a lot of work to speed that up and just benefit of the doubt and you even see it with football like with this offside stuff in the var you go like i think the tmo in rugby is great some people don't like it but i think it's like it's quick enough and only for like important moments enough but now rugby fans are getting annoyed that like they're going back x number of phases and going oh yeah sorry half an hour ago you dropped it so that try doesn't count so i don't i don't know i think i think it's good until it's bad that's such a bad answer it's like it's all positive to make it a better spectator sport but the problem is different spectators watch sports for different things i'm sure there's people that watch rugby and love the scrum they're like that's where the real battle takes place that's where you assert dominance on the pitch but i watch it mostly for the backs i think that's the most exciting mm -hmm. part of the game because that's the game the part of the game that i was involved in I guess, but I, I, I maybe even think penalties could go down to two points in rugby and I wouldn't be that annoyed about it. I mm -hmm. think there's too many games of like attrition and God, more bonus points. One for basketball, actually. I think if you score from your own half, it should be like eight points. That's a great idea. I'd love just, to see. Just, just because. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, I sit and watch videos on Instagram with people. I mean, obviously they've been doing them for like four or five hours standing there, you know, lobbing from the, yeah. spectator the top tier of the spectator stand in the stadium and it bounces and then goes into the, the basketball net or whatever yeah. done a, you know a thousand attempts and they get that one on camera but i love watching all that stuff yeah, so you know yeah. or you know they bring i've never been to an nba game but do they not bring members of the audience onto the court at half time yeah and get the, the moonshot whatever it's called there was halfway a big, yeah. it in there was a big scandal there was a big scandal in the 90s uh, or maybe the early 2000s. Mike, it was, I think, for the Chicago Bulls because Michael Jordan was involved. A guy comes out and it's like a half-court shot to win half a million dollars. I think that was like the, the halftime show thing. And he scores it. And obviously everybody's like, wow, that's crazy. But there was some technicality whereby you couldn't have played basketball past a certain level to be eligible for the competition. And because this guy played in a certain division, like Division Two in college in America, they were like, oh, you're technically ineligible for this competition after he'd already scored it. But I think Michael Jordan either really pressurized the Chicago Bulls to pay out or even maybe contributed and paid some well, of it well, like wow. out of his own pocket because he was like, it's so Michael Jordan to be like, yeah. no, he scored it. <laughs> and therefore, he deserves to win. Plus, they probably who's the the little guy who was the owner who they all hated. At the uh, Jerry Krause. Yeah, they absolutely. So they, they probably just did whatever it was going to yeah. piss him off. Like, <laughs> That's like, a nice pocket. Yeah, come on, bam, Jerry. He's a little toad of a man, oh, Jerry. Krause. It was such a great. I mean, I, I knew nothing about the NBA or Chicago Bulls or really Michael. I knew I knew who Michael, Michael Jordan was. <laughs> yeah, but until I watched the last dance, I didn't know anything about that story. I didn't even know that he had played baseball for a couple of seasons either. Unbelievable. But that that was it? just the most incredible, incredible documentary series. And my wife, who I'll sort of, you know, she, she didn't have any interest in basketball. She's, I said, but we'll sit and watch one episode and see what mm. you think. And we don't have to watch it. I'll watch it on my own if you don't enjoy it. 
and she was totally engaged as well. We loved it. It's a tough it's, one because my partner's not into sports that much either and definitely not into basketball. But I was like, no, like we should just, I pro like I'd already seen it and I was like, I'll watch it with you because as a person, it's brilliant mm. just to see this story of like excellence and achievement and all this stuff. And a good one for that recently actually is <clears throat> I'm kind of halfway through the Ronnie O'Sullivan. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, that. That is brilliant. Oh, just amazing and so fascinating even from like a stand-up point of view. It was a comedian that recommended it to me and she mm. said, look, just for someone who's doing like such an individual endeavor and <clears throat> bearing the weight of these pressurized moments on your shoulders, you have to watch this. It's it gets, it doesn't ruin it, but it gets the second half I found quite stressful. Like oh, it was, really? yeah, it's pretty emotional, hard, sort of anxiety inducing watch at points. Uh, yeah. And Chris, have you seen it? Because Steve Peters comes into it. No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, I'll have to watch yeah. it. So yeah, Steve, Steve, Steve worked with, well, you, you explained. Yeah. yeah, Steve is, he's a, a psychologist who worked with the British cycling team. Oh, yeah. And he's worked with Liverpool Football Club and he works, still works with Ronnie <clears> now. Amazing guy, like an absolutely incredible guy who just breaks down how the brain works and how it reacts yeah. to certain situations and how you can you can choose how to react in moments of stress and how you can not be hijacked by emotional thoughts in those moments. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's worked extensively with Ronnie and really helped him. Because the, the bit... The bit that I found most amazing in the documentary, again, it won't spoil it, but he's mic'd up for the for the World Championships and particularly mm. the latter stages. And you're hearing the whole roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was such an interesting and different insight. I interviewed the director and he was a really fascinating guy. And he said he didn't know, you know, what would happen, but just Ronnie gave him everything. And I think you see that in the documentary. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I think maybe, like, maybe comedians should, like, get on board with this kind of almost the sports psychology <clears throat> mentality for this kind of stuff because I often talk with other comedians about the kind of experience you have on stage and the kind of like dopamine rush and the adrenaline and things. It's not something that most people deal with and it's not something that humans are supposed to experience. We're not supposed to experience X thousand people cheering or X laughing or not laughing and living on that kind of high wire and that knife edge of kind of emotion and I think it's something that comedians often we just shrug stuff off and go like oh well sure it's just jokes isn't it it's just this that oh. and the other but I think I'm starting to like just come around to the fact that yeah it's like it's a it's it's affecting like it it, it really like gets into you and if I have a bad gig I'm very susceptible to being very down for the next few days after that has happened until I basically have a good gig again and that's again probably not a healthy way to deal with those kind of wins or losses in those kind of scenarios so maybe it's something that comedians need to get i i find stand-up comedy absolutely fascinating for all these reasons and you know comparing it to other art forms like singing dancing performing something that is so it, you know if you're if you're a singer you go up and you sing your song you've rehearsed it you're very good you're professional and the audience will stand and clap, or they might not at the end, you know, whatever, but they're, it's objectively a great performance and the audience will recognise that. As a comedian, the, 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 the feet, whether it went well or not well, is entirely down to the response of a random group of people who you don't yeah. know, you've never met before. If, you know, when you get to a certain point, I guess, in your career, people are coming to see you because they know you, they're your mm. fans, but in the early years, or even when you're travelling, I suppose, and 
touring in different places or doing open mics or whatever, it can be random folk that have never heard of you. Yeah. And 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 as you say, you could do a brilliant job, but you might just get a room full of miserable buggers who are not just not into it. And or, it's yeah, it's, it's not it's, their thing. Yeah. And and yet you've objectively you've done a brilliant job and you you've you've performed well, but everything, your whole the, the score of your night is based on random people's um, and it's so like it's so stripped like back and it's so like vulnerable because it's just talking. There's only so many directions you can go with it. Like it's just you and you wrote it and whereas actors or whatever, like maybe somebody else wrote it or there's a band or it's just like me and I'm talking and as soon as it starts to go badly, you see stand-up comedy for how strange it is. Like sometimes I'll zoom out, even if someone's doing well, I'll just be sitting at the back of a comedy club and my brain will kind of zoom out and go, why is everyone listening to him? <laughs> like, it's so strange. He's just talking like anyone in the room could talk. He's telling a couple of stories. Like, obviously, there's kind of like much more practice than proficient at it than them. But like, on the face of it, like, there's no real thing that he's doing that has earned the attention of that many people. And I think that's that becomes really evident when it's not going well, when people aren't laughing. I think everyone in the audience starts to stop suspending their disbelief they kind of go wait why are we listening to this guy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the opposite i love it when like we were out in new york a few weeks ago we went to a comedy club and this guy obviously had his 10 minute slot or whatever and mm. he had his routine planned but he got taken off on a, a, a sort of tangent and then the time was run out with him just telling a story which and it clearly wasn't you know like, you think ah, he's just very good at that and he's, he's planned that in and he was going to but no, it wasn't. It was because yeah. of um, somebody who was chatting to the audience who set him up on a different routine. And and it was absolutely brilliant. He goes, this, and he's like, I can't believe I'm telling the story. Well, I'm kind of running out of time to do my piece, but I'm going to continue with this and commit, commit yeah. to it. And it was absolutely hilarious. Oh, I think my laptop's about to die. Oh, my God. Well, no. well we're, up, we're hours up anyway. Um, is that okay? I'll yeah, yeah, like, but listen. So I don't disappear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh. Fantastic. Thank, very thanks funny. for coming. <laughs> yeah. That was very good. Very good. Uh, I yeah. really enjoyed that. And he's clearly a very talented guy on the sports pitch as well. Yeah. As, uh, God, and that's a hell of a lot of sports stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wait, he, he is back. He is, he oh, is back. back. Here again. we go. I... <laughs> Not got enough power to show <laughs> the camera as well. It's the iPhone now. Hey! Oh, can't hear yet. No audio. This isn't going to translate well to an audio only podcast, but no. oh, anyway, we got you. We got you. Thanks for rejoining. We we're just going to say goodbye to you anyway, but listen, really. <laughs> that is one of the, that's the greatest exit we've ever had of this panic face and then yeah. literally silence. And then it's just us two idiots laughing, just laughing uncontrollably. That is it. <laughs> I, th I think. Matt, to be honest, he was clearly bored and it was the old, oh no, yeah, maximum oh, the an hour. Going maximum an hour. Off. Yeah. My agent said one hour. One hour only. That's so funny. Oh my God. How unprofessional. <laughs> I Listen, yeah, joking apart, thank you so much. We're just uh, saying what, what an hour flew by for us. So yeah, thank you. And just remind us. remind us of the the name of the your show that's coming up at the end of or at some point. Who do you think you are? I am. 
um, which is a very stupid name for a tour, but uh, come along and see the show to find out why it's called that. All the tickets are at vittoriawanzaloni.com. I assume that'll all be in like the description of the episode, all that stuff. So do that. And then for Mike and Vittorio's Guide to Parenting. Um, oh, and just one more little thought I had on our on our chatting about sports documentaries. I just hope for the whole cycling community, we can have a cycling documentary that's a bit more flipping positive. <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, get a track cycling documentary. Again, it'd probably have a similar outreach to this podcast, Matt. Might have, you know, <laughs> might reach triple figures if we're lucky. Um, but, you know, it's not all about success. It's about art, isn't it? Art, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, this, thanks so much, Vittorio. Thank you, Good for luck with the tour. Thanks a lot. Great to meet you. And uh, all the very best, mate. I'll see you again. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.